You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It is Saturday, May 13th at 5 o'clock, and Andre Prue, it is the eve of Mother's Day. You know, it's a big one for me this year, and as we mentioned last week, if you were too late in making your reservations for Mother's Day brunch last week, you are definitely too late this week. <laughs> <laughs> If you're really scrambling to make a booking, guys, um, I'm going to slap you all on the wrist because you mo- knew Mother's Day was coming. You would have been receiving those emails and those promos in your inbox <laughs> at least three weeks at this point now. Oh, man. At least at this point now. I follow so many restaurants on Instagram and it was almost like clockwork this week by the time like last Monday rolled around where it was just like sold out, sold out, sold out. So, yeah. Um so, sorry if if you tuned in hoping to get some Mother's Day recommendations for restaurants. You're in trouble. Yeah, well, I will say you might have a little bit of a better chance at dinner because I know a couple of the people I spoke to earlier this week did say they had spots still open even though their brunches and lunches were sold out. So yeah. who knows? Cross your fingers. Make a phone call. Be very <laughs> nice. Ask very nicely. Maybe they'll pull up an extra table for you. You know, I don't want to spend the whole segment talking about Mother's Day, but I thought it'd be a nice thing because I was really just reflecting on like what was the best way to do a Mother's Day segment on this show. And, you know, one of the things I was just thinking about, sort of tongue in cheek, I think I think people have heard and listened to me on the show often enough that I like to poke a bit of fun at myself, is I was thinking about like I'm looking at my baby downstairs with my wife and, you know, our mothers teach us how to eat. And... um mm. You know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty adventurous eater, and I, I just want to thank my mom for forcing me to eat beets. Because I <laughs> never enjoyed eating beets, and now, as a grown-up, it's something that I really, really enjoy. And I don't know what it was like in, in, in your household, Maroki, but like for me, I always remember growing up as it being a take-it-or-leave-it home. And like I have a lot of other friends who have children... And when you take a look at at their eating habits, like I've got a lot of friends who were, who are cooking two, sometimes three dinners because they've got the picky eaters at home. And I don't remember being picky as being an option in my house growing up. Oh, my second sister was the pickiest eater out of the four of us, I would say. And she would sometimes sit there till nearly midnight. Oh, wow. Um, and because she wouldn't eat her food and my mother wouldn't allow her to leave the table. Okay. And I will say she's a she's actually she's still somewhat a relatively picky eater as an adult. But I, I think um, I think she's also grateful because there were things that she didn't enjoy as a kid that she now enjoys as an adult as well. And I can't say if it's necessarily that influence, but I think if you don't have someone who's challenging your palate or challenging you, right? Like the thing about our parents is that outside of food, they challenge us and they sign us up for things or teach us things or tell us to do things that we do not necessarily want to do when we're children, whether it be cleaning or math homework, but they set us up for success as adults. I I would say that there were a lot of things that, you know, I I can say that my mother never fully instilled my love for beets as an adult. Um, I only ever received (laughs) them boiled from her and they were terrible. I learned to appreciate them eating beets outside of the way she prepared them. I completely get that. There were a lot of, there were certainly a lot of other things I'm super appreciative. I know for me, like one of it is that Chinese was the, you know, had to be spoken in the household mm-hmm. in my formative years. And I am one of the few uh, 
people of my generation, like in my family. So when I say my family, I include my extended family in this. So my cousins, I'm one of the few people who still speaks Chinese fluently. You know, um, there was a little while ago, I heard you speaking Cantonese on the on the phone with someone. And I'm just in awe of that because um, obviously I have a very French name. I'm fortunate enough to speak French. But the other side of the family, I'm a quarter German and a quarter Hungarian. And I don't speak a single word of either one of those languages. And, you know, on one hand, I find it incredibly frustrating that that's a part of my my heritage that I don't think I'll ever be able to get, you know, coming up on age 40, picking up two new languages. And by the way, German's the only class I ever failed in university. So I tried that one and that didn't work. But, you know, one thing I am grateful for is I was opening up my recipe box. Um, you know, we have our mutual friend, Guillaume, who uh, is a French national, recently became Canadian. And I pulled up my trusty butter tart recipe that is still written in my grandmother's handwriting. And while it's not, you know, an ethnically Hungarian recipe, I still have, you know, those recipes passed down from my grandmother. And I do have some Hungarian recipes passed down from her. And it's just, even if you lose the language, being able to communicate through food is something that is so important. So I'm always grateful mm-hmm. for that. Well, I'm sure your daughter will have no problems falling in love with eating butter tarts. Um, <laughs> I guess like, you know, you, you talked about kind of in a, a take it or leave it household. Is that sort of how you're planning on feeding your daughter as well? I don't know. I'm terrified that she's going to be a picky eater just because I don't know. Like, it's just something I'm I'm afraid of. And uh, it's one of these things where, you know, I ask, I've asked many questions generally in a non-judgmental way. I know I sounded a little judgy earlier in the segment about those families that are cooking the two or three dinners. And it's just like, you know, why do you do that? I don't remember that from growing up. And it's just like, oh, just wait. You'll see. <laughs> and it's just like, okay. Just wait, you'll you see. I guess we'll, we'll see. So... Um, I mean, my um, my like my partner's sisters, so my I guess my sister in law, like her children are, and her daughter is only a few months older than yours, and I know she's set up her household very much in a way that's like our children eat what we eat, and they just try everything, and they don't have to finish it, and they don't necessarily have to love it, but they're gonna get, and they might leave it behind, and that's all they're getting but they will get everything that we serve them. And that includes like, you know, when they decide to do takeout, like Indian, uh, like Indian food or Japanese food or Mexican foods, like they'll taste it all, whether it's spicy, whether it's sweet, they get to try all of it. You know, my, I have a nephew who is quite a picky eater, but I've watched my brother do some of the reverse psychology on, (laughs) on poor little, uh, his name is Kylan. And, uh, my brother will put a, a plate in front of him, like when they came over uh, a little while ago after Spencer was born. It was just like, oh, I don't want to eat that. And it's just like, but you like it. And he's just like, do I? Just like, yeah, you had it last week and you liked it. Oh, I guess. And then he would go and eat it. And my brother looked at me and he's like, no, he hasn't eaten that food before ever. Oh, it's so interesting. I think I think my uh, sister-in-law's family does something similar, but they'll do the opposite. It'll be like, oh, it doesn't look like you want it, so I guess I'm going to eat it. So it's like taking the food <laughs> off the kid's plate, and the, plate, the kid's like, no, I do want it, and yeah. then you eat, end up eating it. Going I guess, full uh, Looney Tunes on that, right? Like yeah, That's yeah, a Bugs Bunny I, trick. I guess this, 
this Mother's Day food segment is spinning into mothers and parents. If you have tips on how to um, diversify your kids' palates, please send us your advice. Andre will appreciate it in the coming months and years. Yep, at Andre Wine Review on Instagram if you want to drop in and send me any uh, any tips on how to deal with that. And actually, I, I haven't run this by you yet, Maroki, but I, I think you'll be on board. Is uh, Spencer is going to be switching to solid foods in the near future. And I want to report back on my daughter's reaction to different foods. <laughs> Just because I think it would should... be funny. <laughs> Time to roll in with a pile of dim sum on my end. Oh, I can't wait for that. Um, you know, I guess like stepping right off of all this parenting, there is something I wanted to acknowledge in the news. I know that we're a Toronto-based show, but Montreal Smoked Meat is such an institution. And I think one of the few foods that is uh, distinctly, like, truly Canadian. Um and the main deli in Montreal has closed its door suddenly after 50 years in business. And I, I think a lot of people in the car are, are familiar with Schwartz. But, um, you know, I think it's sort of the joke that's not a joke is um, a lot of people think that the main makes better smoked meat. And uh, you would go sit in the main and watch people wait in line for Schwartz. So I, for one, am shedding a tear for the loss of this institution. I'm shedding a tear because I definitely was the person who waited in line for Schwartz's <laughs> and never gone to Main Street myself, and now I will never have that opportunity. That makes me very sad. Makes me very sad indeed. Well, <laughs> trying to move off the sad notes a little bit, um, I know coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about rice noodles, Andre. That's right. I think we're going to, I guess, ask whether or not the way we deal with noodles in our grocery store is kind of racist. A very loaded topic indeed, Andre, and I'm looking forward to digging into this with you. So stick around. We'll be back shortly after the break on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I'm Andre Prue, and I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong, and I know we've talked on this show a lot about how much I enjoy cooking at home and how I've been looking for, you know, the right resources. I've talked to you, Maroki, quite a bit about my frustration of trying to find really good English resources for learning how to cook uh, Chinese recipes. But one thing I've actually spent a little bit of time thinking about is noodles. In what way? You know, it's, it's the sort of thing where, you know, I've made pho quite often and... There was a period where it was never turning out quite the same because I would go to the um, the ethnic section of a grocery store and grab a pack of rice noodles and take it home, try to cook them the same way. And it never really turned out the same way twice until I realized that I really need to pay attention to the names that's on the packaging. Hmm. I guess like it's it's interesting that you bring this up and... I don't know if it's because I don't cook very often myself, but I think part of the reason why is that I've often referred to rice noodle, like the different forms of rice noodles by their name in Chinese most mm -hmm. of the time. And we usually have even, you know, even if they're Vietnamese, you know, like noodles that are Vietnamese or Korean or, or Japanese, we still usually have like a Chinese name for it already. And so I guess, the, I guess the confusion for me has never been a thing, but you told me, recently that apparently when a lot of rice noodles are translated to English, they're just called vermicelli. Yep. They are just and called I find vermicelli. That, yeah, and I guess I find that so confusing because like for me, vermicelli always was one very specific style of noodle and I didn't realize it was a catch-all name. Like that's if I called 
all pasta pasta or i guess like i called everything spaghetti you know this is why in the tease to this segment i asked the question about whether or not when we're dealing with ingredients traditional ingredients from cuisines that are not typically part of the north american culture i guess i'm even tentative in saying that like toronto is such a metropolitan city i can't believe that i'm saying that but um is this what we're talking about when we're dealing with a, a systemic race racism issue that all these noodles have just become one thing i mean for sure in some ways you have minimized many different cultures skills right in creating beautiful hand-pulled noodles or hand-cut noodles or hand-ripped noodles, um, you know, it, it's kind of, it's like, you wouldn't just say if someone's making a, a baguette versus, you know, making like a loaf of... Um, focaccia, oh God, let's make, go a loaf of Yeah, for loaves of focaccia or sourdough. You're, if you just called all of that bread, yeah, or if you called all of it a baguette, let's just say we decided to just call of it baguette. I'm pretty sure a bunch of people are going to get very, very mad at me. Or if I called everything just angel hair pasta. Yeah. Okay. And you I know was, what? That, that, you know? I'm actually really glad that you, that you took the conversation in this direction because I was really thinking about that. that like being being raised in, in Canada and being someone who loves food and someone who loves cooking. Never in a million years can I imagine pulling like a pasta recipe out and have it just saying, you know, get pasta. It will usually <laughs> specify, you know, if you're making macaroni salad to get elbow macaroni, if you're making a certain, t if you're making a, 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 a spaghetti, a, um, a puttanesca, like a, a pasta puttanesca, you'll be looking for spaghetti. Like, you know, like, as a child growing up in North America, the difference between a lasagna noodle, a spaghetti, a linguine, a tortellini, a ravioli. So why are we so lazy when it comes to all of these Asian noodles, these Asian origin noodles uh, coming here? when a lot of these recipes are becoming a fabric of the culture of Canada. Like, you, you're good luck to find someone within the range of this transmitter that doesn't know the difference between ramen and pho, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, right, if you've had a bowl of pho and you've had a bowl of ramen and you would notice that the noodles are different, can you imagine if you flipped that? Like, can you imagine uh, a ramen bowl with pho inside of it or pho made with ramen noodles or udon noodles like they it would taste very different so if you're trying to make that recipe at home what if you made it and it didn't come out the way you wanted it to oh that's then exactly you would be you'd be like oh the food tastes you'll be like oh the food tastes bad like this you know this ramen dish tastes bad i'm like maybe if you didn't make it with udon noodles or if you think about the ones that do pa like pan fried like chow mein chow mein right chow mein is how you pronounce it in cantonese you need certain noodles that are going to fry up well in, in a wok. And if you pick the wrong noodle for it, things are going to kind of go south in the results. You know, I really just needed to unpack this with you as well, because I've been experimenting with different recipes at home. Um, and I've been trying to make dandan noodles. And it got to the point where I was screenshotting the um, the Chinese characters for the the specific noodles that they're looking for, and then going to my local... Chinese grocery store and doing my best to try to find it. Um, I managed to find it successfully, but I'm telling you, Maroki, I'm spending a lot more time in the grocery store because I don't, I don't read Chinese at all. Well, I'm sure for many immigrants who come to Canada, they didn't read English for the first time either, <laughs> much less French or Italian, which okay, we've all taken point. the time to learn. Fair point. Fair <laughs> point. Okay, so I guess if I want to, if I really want to dive into this learning how to how to cook Szechuan cuisine, I'm gonna have to learn Mandarin. 
I mean, these days, the, the apps are so easy for them. You can screenshot. You can literally, like, wave your phone in front of the food and labels, and it translates or matches it up for you. It's much easier than, like, staring at a piece of paper and matches it, matching it symbol by symbol these days. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. This is my opinion, Andre. This is my very humble opinion. You know what? And would, it's okay. I would love to bring you grocery shopping with me to, to just go through the apps. Because I do think there, even with the translations to English, there is still something that's just lost in translation. Or, you know, you'll flash it at different packages that are side by side. And the words will come completely different. Um, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> well, if you want to get really weird. Let's um, do it. Let's so get weird. I, yeah, if you want, if you want to get really weird when it comes to some confusion, so ramen, which is you know the 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 Japanese word for like the noodles that go into ramen noodles, yes. is actually uses the same symbols um, as the Chinese noodles limein, which okay. are like pulled noodles, okay. but they're actually different noodles. But one, and they actually <laughs> use the same symbols because oh, no. um, Japanese as a language developed from Chinese, and yes. they actually both use the same symbols, but they're intrinsically different noodles. So you have, if you're, so you're making noodles for a limeen dish versus noodles for a ramen dish. You have to make sure you grab the right package that makes sure the package is actually ramen noodles from Japan and not limeen noodles from China. Oh my China. gosh. You know what? <laughs> this sounds like it'd be a big opportunity for someone to make just like a noodle encyclopedia, right? Like take take the noodles, take the characters, translate them to as many different languages as possible, the application and what they're used for to make sure that your your food turns out the way you want it to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great opportunity for there for someone who if I see a book published in the next three years, I'm going to I'm going to be like, congratulations. Um, I'm going to send you a check for my residuals for giving you this idea. I think we need to call up our, our pizza doctor that we talked to a few weeks ago. If if he did the uh, the research on the entomology of pizza and the GTA, maybe we've got to send him on a mission to do noodles next. I know, I know. I, I mean, the thing is, it's like this is like a massive piece to unpack. I will fully admit that well, I'm familiar with mm, a number of Chinese noodles, and uh, even then, I only got um, experience with, um, I don't even know how to pronounce the English phonetic version of it, but like bang bang noodles. Okay. In the last year, they're, they're hand-pulled noodles. It's spelled B-I-A-N-G. That's like the English romanization mm -hmm. of the Chinese symbol. And that's why I'm saying I'm not sure how the English pronunciation is. But even that's pretty new to me. There's so many provinces in China and so many cuisines that are unique to each province. Even I'm beginning to just explore them. So, you know, uh, much less than entering North American cuisine. And I really <laughs> hope it gets the opportunity to do so as, you know, our cities become increasingly more diversified. At the very least, I'm taking, I'm, I'm, I'm not even taking you up because you didn't offer. I'm going to force you to come to a grocery store with me so we can roll the noodle aisle together and I make sure I get the right one. The piece is called It's Time to Retire Rice Vermicelli. Learn the actual noodle names. It's in Bon Appetit, bonappetit.com. And um, I really love that we got a chance to un unpack this a little bit. But I still don't think that I've, I've found my resources to help me become a better Chinese cook. <laughs> I, I don't have the right answer for you for that, Andre. But coming up after the break, we'll have the chance to be talking to a restaurant co-owner who is Chinese Burmese of descent. So maybe he can give you some noodle tips that I don't have. I certainly hope so. But I think that there's actually something really special that you've got cooking with him coming up. And we're going to learn all about that coming up after the break on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. And Maroki Tong, I know we've taken quite a bit of Tasting Together this month to uh, discuss Asian Heritage Month, but you've actually got something really special cooking 
pun intended. Haha, pun intended indeed. Although I won't be the one doing the cooking, so full you know full disclosure there and transparency, which is probably for the best because all of you have heard me say that I'm not really <laughs> one for the kitchen. But I'm super excited to be partnering up with a restaurant in my neighborhood, Aviv Immigrant Kitchen, to create a five course wine pairing dinner to celebrate all the voices. Um, or as many voices as we can within the Asian diaspora. So today we brought on the co-owner, Robert Chi, to join us. Hey, Robert, thank you for coming on board to do this event with me. Thank you, Maroki. Thank you, Andre. Thank you for uh, letting me do this. We appreciate it. Uh, we're looking forward to it. It'll be a fun evening, uh, May the 24th. Uh, I'm very excited. We're very stoked. My partner and I, Maria, are very, very excited, very looking forward to this day. It's uh, it's. It's coming soon and looking forward to it. Robert, maybe I should be the one to start it all off because I was on who discovered your restaurant a few years ago. I, I, I hate to bring back the bad memories, but it was, I think it was almost like right before lockdown that I stumbled into your restaurant during Winterlicious and was like, great, I, I can't wait to keep coming back here. And then promptly was not able to, although I enjoyed a lot of delicious takeout. And then when the patio was open, tried to spend as much time at the restaurant outside as I could. So I know you've been around for a little bit. Um, Aviv is on our block now on St. Clair West, but it used to be on DuPont. So what inspired you and your partner, Maria, to open a restaurant like Aviv Immigrant Kitchen? Like, what does the name stand for and what kind of experience do you generally hope to provide to customers usually? Well, we uh, discovered this area just through our old landlords uh, from uh, from the old landlords from DuPont. Uh, uh, we're we're very very uh, glad, very appreciate, grateful to be this in this area. Uh, it's a very supportive area. Uh, we, what inspired us to be uh, be immigrant? Yes, so my my wife and I are uh, both um, immigrants. Uh, she's from Argentina, Buenos Aires. I'm from Burmese with Chinese background. Uh, we are bringing our work experience, life experience, social experience together uh, to uh, to operate this business. We are we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, we have a big resume regarding our in restaurant industry and hospitality. So what brought us together is our passion for this business, our passion for food, our passion for drinks, our passion for wine, our passion for uh, service and uh, hospitality. And you know what? Like everyone who comes into the restaurant, I think could easily say that they are here to see you and Maria because of that incredibly warm hospitality that you give all the time. I will personally say I selfishly am sad every time I show up at the restaurant and I'm like, oh, Robert or Maria are not here. Well, I guess we really do deserve the night off. So it's totally fair that you're not always there to see oh, us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that I really hope that people get like that energy when they come on May 24th. We're doing a five course pairing dinner, pan Asian cuisine. So we're going to span you know, the, you know, we're going to kind of deconstruct the notion and maybe the formerly negative stereotypes around fusion cuisine, around even pan, what, you know, pan Asian cuisine going from, you know, our, our, both of our backgrounds, Chinese, Burmese to Thai and Korean and Japanese food, all through food and drink. And of course, featuring some Asian owned wineries and Asian represented wines, uh, wine agencies as well. Well, maybe let me flip the script a little bit. Like, uh, Robert, I know we're having you want to talk about this, but Roki, you have a big part in how this meal came together. Actually, this is going to go to both of you. Um, what was the strategy behind putting together some of the great wines that you've chosen and the food there? 
Well, we got together as uh, Maroki got together with the chef as well, and I got we got together with the chef as well, and we uh, we all got we all had a say in this menu. Uh, so we the menu that I think that we have is awesome. Like this is represent what I grew up with uh, as a child, as as uh, coming to Canada. Uh, in 1975, even before that, uh, you know, uh, uh, pork, pork was really part of our staple, um, uh, our, 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 our uh, dinner, our lunch uh, prior and post Canada. Uh, my mom was always cooking uh, with, with squid, cuttlefish, a lot of vegetables on our menu. We even had gardens as, 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 uh, as a child in our backyard. Uh, she still has a garden in, in, in gardens in, in in her house right now, uh, outside her house, obviously. But uh, like we, uh, fresh vegetables, fresh fish, uh, awesome meats are part was part of her staple. She would shop every day. Uh, I remember going to the market to kiss in the market with her uh, at least two or three times a week when we we're living on College and Brunswick, uh, getting fresh fish, getting fresh meat from uh, from the markets in Kensington. So this is represent of my childhood. And uh, I, I, it might be part of Milwaukee's childhood too, but definitely represent my childhood. Right. I love that. I haven't even heard that story from you before, Robert. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, hope, I, I hope you, I hope you hold on to that because I think that's I will, something that we should definitely share the dinner as well. And I think what was interesting is, you know, we, like you know, he, like Robert touched on a few things. We're going to have a you know a vegetable dish like gailan, which is called Chinese broccoli, which is definitely a part of my childhood as well. And it's with a mapo tofu stew, and doing whole fish or doing pork belly. And then I thought to myself, you know, I was like, well, you and I are both, you know, it's not, uh, you know, you have a Burmese Chinese background, but I have a Chinese background. I was thinking, and then um, our chef, Chef Cesar Naranjo. Spanish, Spanish background? Ecuador. Ecuador. It's uh, Central America. Uh, I mean, sorry, sorry, South America. He's uh, it's, in Ecuador. Yeah. And then with Maria, it's like this quintessential experience of all of all of us with these different backgrounds coming forward to celebrate Asian cuisine and the amount of homework that Chef Caesar did. And it just really goes to show. I remember um, Andre and I, you and I had this conversation once before about the concept of authenticity and fusion and how sometimes the concept of authenticity starts even creating new stereotypes where it shows that where people think only Asian chefs should be able to create Asian cuisine. And I think we, you know, have learned to demystify that over the various chefs that we have interviewed, such as Chef Dale McKay, who is, you know, competing on Top Chef Canada uh, not, uh, and all these other incredible chefs. So the, the homework that Caesar brought in was, you know, that has created this, uh, menu means a lot, especially the concept of Pan Asian, because I think historically people saw Pan Asian as perhaps like a lazy experience to, sh you know. But I think for me, it's an opportunity for us, including people like me who's Chinese, um, to embrace other Asian cultures, like I said, Korean and Japanese, and kind of learn a little bit on my own. So, um, but I want to spin back to the whole fish dish. Uh, Robert, because you, you know, were very, I, I guess, <laughs> adamant on making, you know, presenting the fish as a whole fish. We're like, we're not going to break down. I know it might be scary to some people, but I think that's really important to our culture when setting the menu. So I want to ask you, why is this so representative and why should people experience fish this way? Well, I, okay, let's start with the whole fish. So you just imagine the whole body with the eye on, the head on, the tail on, the whole body itself. So, 
uh, imagine in a restaurant, uh, as someone brings the whole fish to the table. Guess what? The person in charge of the table, usually the father, uh, the uh, person hosting the, the, the event, uh, hosting the lunch, hosting the dinner, uh, will get up. Usually it's that person, the, the dominant person of that table will get up and part of the fish. It's, it shows, it shows the, uh, their, 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 their leadership, right? That's what whole fish also represents. Represents as someone carving like a, like a Thanksgiving dinner, uh, uh, turkey. Someone, someone had a table will carve it. So it shows, represents the, the, uh, the leadership of the table. Uh, far as the dish itself, whole fish holds moisture, whole fish holds flavor. Whole, uh, there's no, it's a lot of flavor in, in um, a lot more flavor than if it's filleted. Uh, far as the whole fish concerned, so that's why we uh, we were adamant on having whole fish to keep the flavor locked up in the uh, and keep the moisture locked up in the fish. I really love that. I really love everything you were saying about like the the head of the table being the one that carves up the fish. Um, I was excited to, and I am excited to see this on the menu uh, just because I have fond memories of that dish, but it's largely from the context of going to uh, certain restaurants in Chinatown at 3 a.m. in my formative years in Toronto, but learning very quickly that, you know, it's such a beautiful, simple, but super delicious dish. I also know my mom was the one who carved up the fish when I was there like, you go, the leader of the she family. was the head of the house. <laughs> All, right. The family. All right. So everybody who's listening to the radio right now, you need to go to Asian-Heritage-Dinner.eventbrite.ca. Get your tickets to this fantastic tasting on May 24th. $128 are where tickets start, but for the full experience with all the wine serving, it comes to $168. Um, and make sure you check it out. You will leave very full. You will leave very stuffed and left with leftovers, which is exactly the way hospitality for Chinese people are like. Sounds good to exactly. me. Thanks again for joining us, Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Maroki. That's Robert Chi from Aviv Immigrant Kitchen. And coming up after the break, we are touching into the world of wine and continuing on with Asian Heritage Month. Yes. So stick around. We'll be back shortly after the break on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Maroki Tong and Danny Longo, we are back. And this is the part of the show where we take a look at what's going on in the world of drinks. Um, as someone who's been writing about wine for quite a while, it's something I like to talk about often is who are the owners, who are the people behind what ends up in your bottle. And I still think that a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of the wineries in Ontario are tiny mom and pop run, um, family run businesses. It's true. I mean, despite the glitz and glamour of some wineries in Niagara and Niagara on the lake, a lot of them are still small. And I think you know, I, one of the things we try and share is not only just the stories behind the wineries, but there's stories behind the vineyards as well. And maybe not mm -hmm. every person who grows grapes makes wine. They're actually two separate industries or they can become grape growers that make wine. And, you know, in the theme of Asian Heritage Month, um, there's, you know, one of the things I've always wondered was just what is the diversity of ownership in Niagara vineyards? Mm -hmm. And I no, it's one of those things. It's few and far in between, right? Like Steve Byfield is the only black winemaker that I know of who is in Ontario. And so I've always wanted to think about Asian ownership. And mm -hmm. 
I've come across a couple of vineyards since then. One of them, while trying Thomas Batchelder's Gamay, I think like a year and a half, two years ago, when I saw on the label Baishu Vineyards. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds extremely Chinese to me. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I didn't for, realize. For those of know, you at home, I, spelled B-A-I-X-U. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I was like, I wonder what, like, who owns that? And I end up diving down a rabbit hole of learning about Jackson Bai and how he acquired vineyards in Niagara. And I think he's been a steward of those vineyards for eight plus years, if not possibly longer. Um, and then since then has started making his own wines. Excellent. Can you uh, name some of the wineries? I want to know if I visited them. I know. I, I feel like as a Niagara lover, Danny, like I was like, I wonder if you have. So um, Jackson Bai has created Byland Estate Winery. So his last name is B-A-I, but then he kind of did a play on the names like Byland kind of saying like, you know, the kind of like, kind of, I don't know, travel. It's it's like a spiritual thing. It's like the combining of two, okay. you know, to winery and like, like his experience of like being from China and coming to Canada and kind of being like the Byland. So B-Y-L-A-N-D is sort of how he decided to create the name. So Byland is one of them. And then the other one um, I just learned of in the last year or so, they are fairly new. They're called Wending Home. Mm-hmm. And Danny, I, I realize as I say this to you, you probably haven't visited them yet because I think this year is the first year they're opening their tasting room oh, to the okay. public. I always love visiting new wineries. It's always a, a pleasure when uh, there's new an ownership change or there's a brand new winery that I haven't been to. So yeah, that'll be great next they've time got I'm a, down there. They've got a great location mm-hmm. too. Like it's right around the corner from like 16 Mile and Flat Rock and Henry Pelham, like right in, okay. in that area down mm-hmm. there. Uh, have you been to Nomad uh, by Hinterbrook, either one of you? Yes, I have. I love it there. I've actually, they have a fantastic uh, Christmas market every year in November. Oh, right on. Oh, Maroki, that's, yeah. another, that's another one that's Chinese owned. Yeah, I and I, I think you were the one who informed me of that, Andre. And I, and I think I went in just when they were sort of changing their name from Hinterbrook to Nomad. Yeah, I'd be very curious to know if the name Nomad sort of plays in some sort of like immigrant roots for them as well. It has that kind of vibe. <laughs> I, you know what? I don't. I don't completely remember this because the ownership did change quite a while ago. But the transition has been. I think you used the word steward earlier, and the word nomad. Like it's still called nomad at Hinterbrook Winery. So the new ownership are still very much. Um, I guess paying respect to the original people who planted the vines, which is something I think is is always pretty cool. I mean, that's something that you mentioned Thomas Batchelder earlier is making sure giving credit where credit is due. So it's always cool when you see that. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that location. It's an old barn. Um, actually, I guess a few old barns are like kind of all attached together. A couple of floors, and even outside, there's like a little pond. Great seating area. Yeah, it was. Uh, I love visiting there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like when exploring, perhaps why there is not quite as much diversity in. Um, I guess, agriculture or around vineyards in Niagara. And I'm not sure about the history about in Canada specifically, but if we want to kind of take a little bit look in history, I remember seeing an article that was written about land ownership in the States and Mm -hmm. why you don't really see that many Asian owned like farmlands or black owned farmlands. And it talked about sort of, you know, if we want to kind of take a little bit of a darker turn, you know, like kind of just, I guess like the history of racism and how for a long time, a lot of um, p- 
people of color were not allowed to own land mm -hmm. until quite, you know, probably like not well, you know, until the 60s, 70s, even 80s. And so land, you know, land ownership and agriculture is fairly new things in the United States, at least. And I could see that applying to Canada, given that if I want to specifically look at Asian history for Asian Heritage Month, um, you know, the kind of Chinese head tax and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, kind of barriers that prevented immigration from people from kind of Asia to Canada did not really lift until the 60s and 70s. So I can see that kind of translating to a history of land ownership or agriculture. I completely agree with you. I mean, even just learning about the history of uh, how restrictive the laws were, where it's just like, okay, fine, we can pat ourselves on the back and say that we didn't have slavery as it existed in the states in Canada. But, you know, there were laws that restricted what types of business Chinese immigrants could do. This was after we brought a ton of people over to help build the rail railway across the country. But, you know, up until a very recent history, uh, you know, the impact of these laws are still being felt today. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Wending Home is that the husband and wife who um, brought the land they actually came to Canada because they wanted to become farmers and own their own land. And in China, you actually cannot own your own land. So it's kind of like an interesting, I guess, full circle. Interesting. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, yeah. do, I do love seeing like the, the progress being made. And obviously, there's a lot more that we can do. But I mean, it's one thing when you and I have talked about this a lot off the microphone and hinted at it a little bit is just one of the problems that we face in terms of I guess Chinese or Asian Asian people in general getting involved in the wine industry is just the Eurocentric focus on so many facets of this industry, right? Yeah, and Danny, I guess as someone who doesn't get immersed in the industry as deep as we do sometimes, like, do you feel like that there is a Eurocentricity in the world of wine? And if so, how does it show up for you? Because I think like I have a really specific perspective on it, but I'd like to hear from a perspective of someone who perhaps doesn't kind of live it day to day like I do. Um, for sure. I mean, you know, visiting most of the wineries in Ontario, you definitely see it there. There's definitely a heavy, I would say Italian. Um, there's a few, I believe there's a few Portuguese. There's some German. Uh, there's definitely French. Yeah, it's definitely very heavily European, at least in Ontario, from my experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the biggest things that shows up for me is... Um, it's one I talk about a lot is that wine tasting notes inherently skew towards European or North American flavors, mm -hmm. right? So you're talking about apples and berries, but there was a story I heard from, you know, a noted sommelier down in New York City who spoke about how when he was in wine school or in psalm school saying that something had the notes of papaya and was actually laughed out of the classroom and, you know, got a dirty look from the teacher saying this was not part of like the psalm aroma wheel, and I'm like, really? Wine being inherently a subjective thing has objective nose? That makes no sense. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it's the thing, too. If you take a look at the back labels of a lot of wines that have the suggestions, you know, you'll easily pick up a Cabernet Sauvignon that will have like a very detailed pairing about a specific recipe for, uh, you know, a specific cut of red meat, which is definitely something, you know, we could call it continental American or, or European inspired cuisine. But you pick up any bottle of Riesling and Gewürztraminer and it just says, Asian cuisine on the back, which is pretty lazy. You would never say North American cuisine or European cuisine as a catch-all, you know? Mm -hmm. And maybe we can also stop pairing Riesling and Gewürztraminer with all Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese food. I mean, look, 
I love Gewürztraminer. I love Riesling. I think they pair very well with dim sum or sushi. But there are so many other wines that you can pair with, you know, for me using the broad scope pan Asian cuisine. And that's what I'm doing, um, you know, on May 24th with Rob from Aviv Immigrant Kitchen. We are going to pair other wines with the pan Asian cuisine. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. Maroki, how can people get tickets to your event again? So, of course, you can always go through my Instagram at 9OuncesPlease, or you can visit asian-heritage-dinner.eventbrite.ca for tickets. Thanks, Maroki. Danny, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And coming up next week, we're going to continue to dive into Asian Heritage Month, where we're going to be joined by author and journalist Anne Hui, who's going to talk to us about how authentic those chicken balls on your plate really are. And they're as authentic as they come. So set your alarm clocks, folks, and we'll see you next week on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto.